Thanks for listening to Banter. We're back from our August break and have a great lineup of guests that we're excited to bring you this fall. First up today is the director of our Foreign and Defense Policy Studies Department, Corey Shockey. We recorded our episode with Corey in July, but stay tuned at the end of the episode to hear Corey react to the biggest foreign policy news that's happened since, the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan and the Biden administration's withdrawal. Joining us on Banter today is Corey Shockey, who's the Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies and a senior fellow here with us at AEI, where her work focuses on national security, defense, and U.S. foreign policy. Corey's a contributing writer at The Atlantic and War on the Rocks. Before joining AEI, she was the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. She has also worked at the U.S. State Department, the Department of Defense, and the National Security Council at the White House. She's written five books, including her most recent, America versus the West, Can the Liberal Order World Order Be Preserved?, which was published in 2018. Thanks for joining us on Banter, Corey. It's a great pleasure. So, Phoebe, you know, as you are an alumni or alumnus of uh, foreign and defense. Didn't you yes. work in the foreign yeah. defense team here at AI as a first year and a half? First year and a half, and yeah. and and so as the name implies, it's foreign affairs and defense. Mm-hmm. And Corey's great in both, but her her I, I would say maybe I'm wrong about this, Corey. But you are a little more on the defense side in your expertise and the things you focus on. Is that fair to say, or do you not like to be pigeonholed? It is fair to say. I got my start working in the Pentagon, and so my reflexes got trained by the American military. Well, and that being the case, trained by the American military, what are the, just looking out at the, our sort of defense posture now as a country, where, where are you concerned? Where are we, are we weak? What deserves our attention as Americans to make sure we have the best defense in the world? I think my main concern is that the gap between what we say we have the ability to do and what we are actually paying for in the defense program, that gap is pretty wide. You know, when the current defense strategy was propagated in 2017, the Secretary of Defense and every subsequent Secretary of Defense said that in order to execute this strategy, we need real growth of 3 to 5% year on year in the defense budget. And that growth only materialized two years. The Biden budget, which was just submitted, doesn't even keep pace with inflation. And it makes me really nervous to have such a wide expanse between what we say we can do and what we're actually buying the ability to do, because those kinds of gaps historically tend to be tested by your adversaries. And if, for example, the U.S. uh, chose to defend Taiwan from a Chinese attack, we have significant risk in our ability to carry out the plans that our military has created and our political leadership has approved for doing that. And losing wars is a really terrible way to find out you haven't bought the military you've been claiming you have. So uh, that's the dollars and cents, that there's a belief that in order to have the defense we need to have, we should spend X amount, and we haven't been spending that amount. And, And yet we still act like we can do what we say we can do. But what's the practical, what is the the military hardware, the military 
component that that it goes lacking? Is it ships? Is it is it uh, armor? What aren't we buying that we should buy, and and apply it to, to Taiwan? What what do we need to defend Taiwan that we're not buying? So that's a great question. And if I could only identify one thing, it would be we are not buying a large enough navy, and we're not buying enough training time for that navy, uh, because. One of America's huge advantages over our potential adversaries is the amount we train and operate our military. So if the first piece of it is that, you know, we have fewer than 300 ships in the American Navy, um, and uh, that's not enough to be able to rush quickly to defend the first island chain in the Pacific and without making hugely painful prioritization compromises. You know, there are serious defense analysts out there now, uh, like Elbridge Colby, who are arguing that the U.S. military can only do China, and therefore we need to stop caring about everything else in the world in order to have the military capacity to manage China's rising threat. I think that's too draconian, but the general point is correct that, uh, that unless we increase the size of our force, we are going to have to make agonizing trade-offs because we will not be a global military. We will only have the capacity to handle one regional problem at a time. Well, I, I was going to say that when you said the Navy, that I, I wondered if that sounded kind of old school. I mean, isn't there a, a isn't there guys like Chris Bros or who 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 sometimes say the the old way of fighting wars isn't going to be the way we fight wars? Tell me why. I mean, you sound like Winston Churchill in 1900. I mean, it, it, we still need ships. A navy really is still a very effective way to deploy force around the world. You know, old school is always a pretty good way uh, to think about warfare. Uh, because the things that make for winning wars, the determination to do so, building public support for the continuation of it, the grit to take casualties and keep fighting, um, the creativity to adapt once you see what your adversary is doing. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of Chris Bros. I worked with him in the State Department, but I think... Uh, we have a tendency at the moment to say technology will change everything. And if you think about naval warfare, for example, the American Navy is deeply reliant on the ability to pass information and communicate. That's how we integrate our forces. And it's a major operational advantage for the United States over almost every other military in the world. In fact, I would say over every other military in the world. But which means, of course, that the first thing our adversary will try and do in a war is pollute or disrupt our communications, right? They will send false information. They will down our communication systems. And, and Chris Brose argues that's the thing to be afraid of. And he's right to an extent. But the second piece of the equation is, how do you fight when your communications are polluted or down? 
because we're going to do the same thing to our adversaries. So figuring out what are our advantages and how do we develop operationally and personally the grit to be able to fight in those kinds of situations. That's what's not changing about warfare. So getting back to the ships, is this aircraft carriers? Is it destroyers? What, 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 kind, of, what kind of Navy armor do we need? Well, aircraft carriers um, are a great way to project power. They're also pretty vulnerable, and they're large. They're both large targets and large draws of resources, right? You need submarines to be able to protect them at a perimeter. You need the aircraft go, to go on them. So it's a big undertaking. Uh, I agree with the trend in defense thinking right now that we probably have the aircraft carriers we need. Where we should focus our attention is on the ability to swarm unmanned vehicles, so ships that don't have people on them, um, and submerged latent um, storage of ammunition and things like that. There are a lot of interesting innovations going on that will make the ships we have a lot more lethal and not require large increases in personnel in order to increase the fleet. Mackenzie Eaglin from Foreign and Defense Policy and John Ferrari have done a lot of great work uh, on how to upgrade the existing platforms. We still need more, but we can improve what we have. Um, but we are not on a trajectory to do that, and we need to be. So you mentioned McKenzie and shifting a little bit from defense uh, and more toward foreign affairs, but the defense foreign affairs combined. She had the defense secretary of the United Kingdom in the building this week, and they did a wonderful interview up in our library. And I was telling people that I thought McKenzie was doing a great Barbara Walters inter, uh, impersonation, <laughs> uh, or or any or it looked like a sixty minutes interview. It was a really great exchange. And she got the the defense secretary to say that he was a big believer in in forward deploying of military assets in countries of a small amount, not much, to sort of be there as a deterrent to aggressors in the in that in that relative neighborhood. And of course, the, Afghanistan was sort of lurking in our minds when he was saying that. He actually said something that I found interesting. He said, we have an old saying in the UK, how many Americans does it take to deter aggression? And he said, one, so long as he's on duty, which I thought, <laughs> only, what about it? My, my question to you is, how do you think the American, do you think we need to have soldiers all over the world? Yes, I do. And for the reason that the British Defense Secretary said, which is that um, you know, the gruesome way to say it is that it's the buckets of blood argument, which is that you force a country to care um, if you have killed some of its people in the course of your aggression. Uh, if Americans had been stationed in Crimea or eastern Ukraine when Russia invaded, that would have changed Russia's calculus enormously. 
or think about the example uh, in Syria where Russian mercenaries were attacking American forces precisely to test that theory. Uh, and the United States responded in force to make sure people, under, the Russians, understood that message. The, but there's another reason for it that the British defense minister didn't say, which is one of the major things the American military does, and does incredibly well, is train other countries' militaries to have the ability to manage their own security. And that is what we were doing in Afghanistan, trying to bring the Afghan military up to the standard where we didn't have to fight the Taliban, they had the capacity to fight the Taliban. And that's mostly what the American military does where it's stationed around the world. And it's stationed in, my guess would be 50-some countries around the world. In small numbers, yes, but, you know, Marines training with the Norwegian Army in the Arctic is not only good for Norway, we learn a lot from them which will make us better should we ever have to fight in the Arctic. Um, training at Darwin, Australia, with the Australian military to make sure we and they can fight in close cooperation with each other because Australians have contributed troops to every war the United States has fought since the turn of the 20th century. Those examples are another reason why it's important to have the American military out in the world and uh, improving our security by helping other countries' militaries be great at their work. You mentioned um, Afghanistan. What do you see as the consequences and what's the timeline that we can expect um, in that region, given the Biden administration's very abrupt um, and complete decision to withdraw there? I think the consequences are going to be disastrous, Phoebe. Uh, we are already seeing um, the Taliban roll up a lot of precincts, rural areas of the country, and threatening violence against major cities. And we are seeing some Afghan security forces surrender to the Taliban in hopes of um, saving their own lives. I say that with no disparagement of the Afghan security forces. The mystery all of us should be asking, the admiration all of us should be giving our Afghan partners is how many of them are willing to sign up for Afghan security forces when they have lost over 100,000 soldiers mm -hmm. in the fight against the Taliban. It's the grit of the Afghans ought to inspire us to admiration and assistance, not to walking away, um, especially not as disgracefully as the Biden administration has. I would also say that, as Michael Rubin pointed out in a very good piece last week, the, the effects won't merely be internal to Afghanistan. What we have told America's adversaries is, even when the price to us is very low, we don't have the determination to see things through. That will make it harder for countries to commit to partnering with us to do hard things, and it will lure adversaries into trying to test our resolve. 
and, and not in and not in any um I don't want in any way contradict anything you said Phoebe because you say everything brilliantly but it was abrupt on the Biden administration but it wasn't we could see it coming for a couple of years yes. uh, because the, the Trump administration had committed to getting out too it it seemed abrupt with Biden when he finally did it. It's one of those things that seemed like it might never happen yeah, right. <laughs> because that's, it was on the horizon for that, so long. That's a good but, point. That's yeah. a good point. It's true. It's been on the horizon since the Obama administration, um, right? You'll remember President Obama committed to a surge in Afghanistan. We surged military forces. We never surged the civilian part of the equation that makes tactical victories turn into something bigger and more strategic. But when President Obama announced that surge, he also announced when the drawdown would begin, which dramatically undercut the effectiveness of that. And the last three American presidents have been unwilling to commit any political capital to the undertaking. They've been unwilling to explain to my mom and other Americans why what we're doing there matters. And so, consequently, you saw public support erode over time. What I know as a scholar of civil-military relations is that the American public is actually easily persuaded about the arguments about shaping the world in positive ways that increase our security and our prosperity. But they lose confidence pretty quickly when a president doesn't make it important. And I think that's what we saw over three administrations. And that's why, even though, for example, there was no American killed in Afghanistan in the last year, um, President Biden acted like it was an urgent requirement for us to leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you uh, lauded the grit and, and bravery and, and effort of the Afghani security forces who are being rolled up by the Taliban, as you say. And you also heralded the ability of the United States military to train countries military forces where they are deployed, as they have been in Afghanistan. So if both of those things are true, why is it that Taliban is so successful against the Afghanistan security forces? It's the same reason that the United States struggles to defend itself against terrorist attacks, because preserving security everywhere is hard, and damaging it in one place is easy, right? Blanketing an entire country with security forces and preserving people's safety all over a country as large and populous as Afghanistan, as large, populous, and poor as Afghanistan, is no easy task. Whereas intimidating a population into submission isn't nearly as difficult. Um, or attacking in a place that causes people to fear they can't protect themselves um, isn't nearly as hard as preserving security. So I'm, I'm pondering that a little bit. I, as you said that answer, I was sort of reminded of, of uh, sort of the, the, the schoolboy stereotype of the, of the British soldiers standing up and marching in formation while the, you know, the 
or the gorilla, the gorilla, you know, the old gorilla in the jungles of Vietnam, that it's impossible to fight a a scattered force of rebels. Is, is that what you mean? That, that, that the Taliban just has the advantage of of being able to be everywhere and all the time? Or I don't quite, they don't, they don't fight, they don't fight in the normal way. I, I, I'm still vague on why the Taliban is just so much stronger militarily. So for a couple of reasons, right? They don't have to govern. They don't have yeah. to set up courts and make an economy function and uh, worry about sewage treatment and third grade reading rates. So they're doing one narrow function while the Afghan government's trying to do a whole bunch of things simultaneously. And the second thing is, think about the parallel of the American Revolution. As long as George Washington had an army in the field, we had a revolution. So he had to just not lose. Um, And by not losing, succeeded. Whereas what the British had to do was um, do everything. They had, to, they had to keep Boston free of insurgents. They had to prevent Washington spies from lighting New York City on fire. They had to protect everywhere. And that's just objectively a much harder challenge um, than being able to keep fighting. Which, is what, which was the brilliance of George Washington's strategy in the Revolution. As long as you had an army, you had a rebellion. As long as the Taliban can, can continue to have a military force and attack places, they're successful. Whereas every time they attack a place, it's a failure of the Afghan government. You mentioned that you are, and I know you are, an, an expert and maybe the foremost expert expert on civil-military relations, and, and there's been a kind of uh, a tense period with regard to that in the last four or five years, and, and centered in that tense peri- period has been General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff. How do you assess his performance uh, in the last years of the Trump administration What's your, what's your, I know you follow this very closely and I think you speak to General Milley. So what is your, what is your, what is your summary of that, of that situation? I think it's records mixed. If I were General Milley, I would try and uh, ensure that he got graded like Olympic diving, right? Like a degree of difficulty factored into the score. (laughs) Because I thought you were going to say it doesn't make a splash. <laughs> <laughs> also, not making a splash is a good look yeah. for military leadership. Yeah. <laughs> and General Milley has not been doing that. <laughs> um, so I think the record's mixed. I think, you know, how General Milley became the chairman is a, is a useful illustration. So he was sent to see the president as the nominee to be the American military commander in Europe. And President Trump said, you look exactly like what a chairman should look like. Why aren't you here to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? And what General Milley should have said is, respectfully, Mr. President, that's a conversation for you to have with the civilian secretary of defense. Instead, 
whatever General Milley said, he emerged from the White House as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff nominee, which, you know, that both gives a sense of the degree of difficulty uh, of navigating with President Trump, but also um, General Milley, you know, seeing the sparkle of opportunity uh, that that produced. I think gener- a second... Um, I have to stop you there for just a second, because are you saying that a principle of appropriate civilian-military um, uh, relations is the chain of command between the president and the secretary of defense and then exactly. to the military? Is it, is it, that, that's not just a story of that episode. military advisor, but the secretary of defense is the chairman's boss. Yeah, yeah. And he leapt across that. Um, again, it's an awkward circumstance, but it's also true that senior military people are the guardians of those norms. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I think, regretfully for General Milley, the thing he's likely to be most remembered for is having uh, is the image of him in a combat uniform standing next to President Trump walking through Lafayette Square after American security forces had forcibly cleared it of peaceful protesters during the Black Lives Matter um, protests. And, and that, that's a really bad look for the American military. And exactly what the president was trying to manipulate the military into doing which is seeming like the military supported the president's political views. And one of the cardinal principles of American civil-military relations is that our military is so trusted because they stay away from that kind of politics. Hmm. General Milley, to his great credit, uh, taped an apology and delivered it to the National War College, explaining that he should not have been uh, with the president, and talking through reinforcing the norm of subordination to the Constitution. That is, the American military takes their oath to the Constitution, not to the president or anybody else. And so I think, you know, since then, General Milley has really worked, or between then and and inauguration of President Biden, General Milley really worked very effectively to keep the American military out of the political dust-up of a contested election and the challenges of, of the insurrection in January 6th. I would say, though, since then, both in congressional testimony and in leaks reported in, in journalistic accounts of the Trump administration, um, I am uncomfortable that General Milley is once again putting the military in a position where they are being are open to challenges about things that have nothing to do with the military, like critical race theory. Um, that civil military relations in the United States are best served by our military focusing on its military tasks and not engaging in the political spats of the day. 
Um, the one uh, dilemma that he was in in the most recently reported uh, stories concerns the sort of post-election period. And I just want to ask a question. Do, do you think that or is there a, a guide on, on, a, a ch on what happens after an election but before an inauguration where um, the relationship between the military and the the outgoing uh, presidency or president changes from what it was prior to the election. Tell me a little more about what you mean about a guide. Like, is there a formal, um, are there formal requirements of the military, or do you mean in the accounts that have been published, there seems to have been a change in the relationship between senior military people and the elected administration? It, it well both well kind of both is that is that if 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 the election is held and the apparent winner is is A and the outgoing president is B, does the does the people at the Pentagon are, are they kind of uh, would you want them to be under sort of guidance that well if you get some some instructions from the outgoing president's office, you could slow walk them or you could ignore them no. because. No, so what's the protocol there? I just, I just, is, just what is the, the appropriate protocol, protocol? The law yeah. is that the president is the president until the new president is inaugurated. And we really don't want a military where people get to decide whether or not to obey an order. If an order is legal and moral, Everyone in the military has a responsibility to carry it out. Whether you think it's damaging to democracy or not is not something we want the American military to be making judgments about. Um, and so there's a reason uh, that uh, good order and discipline is such an important part of an effective military. And in the United States, the subordination of the military to the elected political um, administration is absolute as long as an order is legal, which is why we have lawyers in the military to be able to tell commanders, yes, this is legal, you have a responsibility to execute the order. Um, the question about the morality of orders is the only place in which um, there is any gray area. And that has traditionally been reserved for being instructed to kill someone when you think it is either unnecessary or immoral. Uh, orders, for example, to commit torture, it would be appropriate for an American military soldier, sailor, airman, marine to refuse that order. But to say, you know, the president ordered us to initiate a nuclear war. We're not going to do it. The American military doesn't get that latitude, and they shouldn't get that latitude. Those are appropriately decisions above their pay grade. Okay, that's pretty. It's pretty yeah. solid uh, definition of the yeah. of the rules and requirements. That's why we 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 love you, Corey. You get it straight. It's just tell it tell <laughs> it the way it is. I have one last question. Uh, because we are running out of time, it's going. This has gone quicker than I expected, and we haven't been able to cover all the ground. So we have to have Corey come back. Yeah. Just going back to Afghanistan because that is the 
sort of the most timely news of the day. One of the reasons we went into Afghanistan was related to terrorism and 9-11, I, I, as I recall. And with all the bad things that are going to happen in Afghanistan in the next period of time, it looks like, is one of them going to be that that uh, it will re- it will again be a base for terrorism that leaves Afghanistan and comes to Europe or comes to the United States? I think that is a lesser threat for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that you know we were not prepared for a terrorist attack on September 11th of 2001. But American defenses have gotten an awful lot better since then. Our knowledge about jihadists worldwide, our intelligence networks around the world constantly scanning for emergent jihadist threats, terrorist threats, our screening of people coming to the United States, uh, the FBI's domestic um, terrorist watches, uh, the way we screen communications overseas through the National Security uh, Agency and other intelligence networks. So we've gotten a lot better at playing defense than we were uh, on September 11th. A second reason I'm less concerned about that is I do think the United States overreacted to the terrorist threat in 2001. But it sent a very clear message that the United States uh, was willing to divert ourselves so much from the path that we were on in our defense preoccupations of 2001 in order to address the terrorist threat. You know, there's a joke in the American military that the most dangerous job in the world is being the number two in Uh, (laughs) al-Qaeda, right, because they get killed regularly. Um, And that, too, is an important message, uh, that we have the ability to to kill uh, terrorists anywhere in the world. And so I think that diminishes the attractiveness of what Osama bin Laden called the far war, which is challenges to the United States and Europe. The third uh, reason I am less concerned about it is we've been training the Afghan National Security Forces, their intelligence networks, their civilians who make national security decisions, and their military. We've been training them for 20 years. And even though they are subject to successful attacks, they're also really good at their work. And they're better defenders by far than they were in 2001. What I think is a bigger threat is destabilizing uh, immigration, so waves of refugees from Afghanistan into Pakistan, from Pakistan, because the Taliban operates uh, in Pakistan as well. And we are already seeing waves of immigrants going to Europe from Afghanistan and being turned back by European countries. So that's a, a related problem that I think has the potential for bigger effect in the near term that are destabilizing politically. So that's a good way to end. That's a, that's a problem that we, is different than a terrorist a threat problem. Um, and uh, it's been great talking to you, Corey. Thank you. Phoebe, do you have anything else to add? 
Yeah. It's been a great pleasure, Phoebe and Robert. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Of course. Corey, thanks so much for joining us one more time to give us another update um, on the Afghanistan situation. So I was checking back and we reported actually on July 15th, which was one month to the day that the Taliban expanded into Kabul, um, you know, in, in August. So uh, when we talked about it last time, you were warning that the Taliban was advancing and seizing territory. Um, and you said the consequences of the withdrawal would be disastrous. Um, but did you have any idea that it was going to happen this quickly? No, uh, I didn't. And the Biden administration clearly didn't either. And it was their responsibility to be able to anticipate and plan for bad outcomes. I think a pair of decisions by the Biden administration, first, to take the US presence down to zero, and second, to do it by September 11th, First of all, the terrible symbolism of capitulating to the Taliban on the anniversary of the attacks on September 11th. But second of all, by, by saying that it had to happen that fast and withdrawing air support, maintenance support uh, from the Afghan National Security Forces, we actually shouldn't be surprised that they capitulated fast because drawing it out doesn't get them very much. Yeah, and I think it's, I've heard a lot or I've read a lot of commentators kind of saying, you know, even if we were going to withdraw and we were, you know, dedicated to removing all troops at some point, it, you know, even if there was a popular mandate maybe to withdraw after two presidents from different parties were elected um, saying that we were gonna, you know, end forever wars, it obviously, it didn't need to be done this way. Um, so do you think, you know, even if all troops were going to be withdrawn um, down to zero, was there a better way to do it? Oh, absolutely. There were a lot of better ways to do this. I mean, the best way to do it would be to say that we are committed to uh, withdrawing, but only when the conditions that will make the Afghan government successful and that will make the people of Afghanistan secure. Uh, so the Trump administration entered into a terrible capitulation to the Taliban in the Doha agreement. President Biden didn't have to be bound by that, especially since the Taliban were not keeping up their side of the bargain. He should have stepped back from the agreement and instead said, we need to renegotiate this based on what the Taliban are actually doing. And once we have a stable agreement that can be politically inclusive for Afghans, then we will recommence an American withdrawal. And uh, last question, just what short-term consequences do you think the withdrawal will have for counterterrorism in the region, but then also long-term for our stature on the world stage and alliances? Well, I think we saw some of the short-term consequences in the suicide bombing at the Kabul airport gates. Yep. Terrorist organizations are going to be able to operate with impunity in Afghanistan's territory, either because the Taliban will permit them or because the Taliban cannot govern the territory. Um, so I think the the ability for terrorist organizations to have a place of uncontested security will increase the terrorist threat to the United States and to others. 
Um, a second near-term consequence is the collapse of a hopeful future for the people of Afghanistan. 60% of the university students in Herat and Kabul were women. And now that will no longer be possible for them. We are already seeing people, interpreters and others who had helped keep the United States safe being taken from their homes and, and penalized, imprisoned and killed. And so I think those near-term consequences are severe and it infuriates me that the president of the United States is so unempathetic to the fact that decisions our government made is, is imposing consequences and danger on others. And that leads me to the long-term consequences. The choices President Biden has made and the ways he has justified and communicated those choices will make it harder for the United States to gather allies. At any time we need to fight a war or get a common policy, like for example, if you think you need to find a way to force China to play by the rules of the existing order, it will be much harder for us to persuade other countries you can trust us, we will stand together and do this hard thing when we were unwilling to continue doing something that was no longer very difficult or costly for the United States to do in Afghanistan. Okay, well, on that note, thanks again for, for joining us for that update. Um, and we'll have to have you on again as, as all these things continue to develop. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.